Welcome to episode 378 with my guest, Cy Amundsen. Uh, this is from the trip we just, uh, we just made. <laughs> me and the ghosts that follow me. Uh, the trip I just made to Minneapolis. I was afraid to say me with the podcast because I think it sounds selfish. Uh, my hope is that, like, if I live to be 95, like two days before I die, I finally go, this is silly that I care so much what people think. And then I get like 48 hours of just relief. Um, really loved this last weekend in Minneapolis. Uh, we did two shows at Sisyphus Brewery. Many thanks to uh, Sam Harriman, uh, who owns and runs Sisyphus. He was a guest uh, last year on the podcast. And uh, my guests this year, um, or this trip, were... Cy Amundsen, who's a comic, very funny guy. That's the episode you're about to listen to. And um, then in a couple of weeks, we're going to air the show that we interviewed Nora McInerney, who is awesome. She hosts uh, Terrible, Thanks for Asking, and she's an author and super vulnerable, super funny. And I'm going to use the word super a third time. Uh, thank you to everybody that came out for the shows in Minneapolis. It is so grati- gratifying. And it's so nice to see mental health professionals come out and to see that they enjoy uh, the podcast. That is so uh, gratifying uh, to me because when I started the podcast, I thought they are going to chase me with torches to the outskirts of town. And that actually excited me because one, I would get exercise and two, I would finally get to see the outskirts of town. I've always wondered i know that there's there's a hedgerow <laughs> i know that there's uh some windy roads that do a little dipsy doodle and uh i know you have to cross the tracks to the other side of town to get to the outskirts of town and uh i know that there's some some troublemakers over there some ne'er-do-wells have i beat this bit far enough into the ground uh, our sponsor for this episode is BetterHelp.com. Uh, I love them. It's a really, really great online counseling service. Um, tons of people that listen to the podcast have started using it, and the feedback I get is fantastic. So um, if, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm a big, fat liar saying I enjoy it, well, then uh, take take the word of dozens of people who have contacted me and said thank you for introducing me to uh, to BetterHelp.com. So um, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental and fill out a questionnaire. Then they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week. Uh, a free week? <laughs> a free week to see if it's, if it's right for you. And you and your counselor can decide the frequency. Um, you could you know talk to them uh, multiple times a week. You could do it through video, phone, Email, live text, what what smoke signal, um, skywriting, Morse code, that thing they do on the ships. What the hell is that called? I want to say semaphores. Isn't that a Girl Scout cookie? Semaphores. Oh, it's too much caramel. Too much caramel in the semaphore. Uh, but go check out BetterHelp. Dot com And make sure you go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Then they'll know you came from the podcast and they'll see that, hey, Paul is a good sponsor. Um, is that what I would be? Client? 
Ugh, I'm starting to make myself sick. Let's let's get to this to this episode. But I'll go to BetterHelp.com/mental, and you need to be over 18. And we're, we're not going to do any uh, surveys on this show. Um, and, but hopefully next week we'll we'll be back to to doing some. And um, enjoy the show. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame, and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom. People-pleasing. Dread. Silent, invisible. Just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization. Depersonalization. The suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get... You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, (laughs) and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I I didn't get that job. Well, I'm uh, I'm so grateful that that you guys are here, and I'm really excited to uh, to talk to uh, our guest. He's a, a local comic, uh, really funny guy, and uh, you've seen him, I'm sure, uh, on the television and the internet. Uh, he has a Comedy Central half hour uh, called Comedy Central Presents. Uh, Cy Amundsen, and uh, let's bring him up right now, Cy Amundsen. How are you? I'm good. I'm a little uh, intimidated by your height. It's good. That's how I like it. Yeah, looking down at me. That's how I like it. Fucking young, good-looking, tall. I'm talking about myself. If it makes you feel better, I'm having a bit of a rough day. Are rough, you? Rough start. I like to get up, stretch out at the hotel, sing a little opera, some asshole. Oh, my God. That was you. Next door to me, ruining my shit. Wow, my God. This is so... Coincidental. It is very coincidental. Yeah. It's almost like I saw the first part of the show. It is. <laughs> I didn't know there were young opera fans. But huge, uh, huge. Huge. Big phantom guy. Yeah. N- name a single other opera. Phantom uh, Part 2. and uh, Phantom the, Menace. Yep, the Phantom Menace and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and the Phantom Returns. And the Phantom Returns. Back to the Miners, yeah. Were you raised in uh, Minneapolis? I was raised in Outstate, uh, near South Dakota, TR, I, uh, Worthington, Minnesota. So down by the where Iowa and South Dakota. We don't meet. give a shit. No, we you don't care. Give a shit. Yeah. People love geography. Yes. Okay. Yes. People love to know no, stuff go ahead. like that. No, I, yeah. The southwest corner of the state, small town called Worthington, Minnesota. Okay. Yeah, really uh, great place. And you, um, you mentioned in in the. I, w- I watched uh, the Comedy Central. Is this really? Is it? Is it, this happening? This is not happening. This no. is not happening. And I like to butcher whatever. Any name that has more than two words, yeah. uh, it's. I'm a big fan of opera of the Phantom. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you mentioned in this story uh, that alcoholism. Um, oh no. Did you mention alcoholism runs in your family? No. I I'm mean, thinking. we have a smidge of it, but I didn't a mention that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you just, that's just a good guess. That is a good guess. <laughs> that's like, you, you, there was a river within 500 miles of you where you grew <laughs> yeah. up, correct? Someone in your family's name starts with a D. Yes. Um, so d- d- describe, if you would, uh, what it was like growing up where you did, especially kind of uh, in your family, uh, emotionally, what it was like. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, a pretty interesting family, uh, just as it sits. Uh, so my, I have eight siblings. Good God. That's a bunch of them. And uh, they're all broken up. I got two, there's two different dads, a bunch of adoptions. It's like a lifetime original movie situation going on at our house. It sounds like a lot of paperwork. It is a lot of paperwork. Yes. I like your idea of yeah, yeah, leaning I'm, I'm, back I got, against I, the wall. I have this a is weak nice. body, so I'm going to rest back yes. here. I don't, I don't need to prove to these people I if, have posture. If that know. is what a weak body looks like, I don't know what mine categorizes as, but uh, go ahead. Probably weaker. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> so you're a scientist. I'm a big science guy. I love yes. science. Uh, so I, so my mother was married, had three children, uh, mm-hmm. two girls and a boy. Uh, remarried, divorced, remarried my father, had my brother Greg and I, and then when we were really young, adopted my sister Sarah from El Salvador. Uh, and then when I was uh, like 19 or 20 years old, they decided to adopt three more teenage girls uh, because they are lunatics and, uh, and uh, with huge hearts. And yes. so that made the nine of us. And uh, it's, it, it's pretty, I'm pretty fortunate. It's, we don't use adopted or half or step or any of those terms so i it's i grew up with uh and you just call them visitors yes right? i just call them humans that are near me and yes. uh and uh yeah and so that that was uh and still is my life just a, a gigantic family of people from all different kind of points of views and situations and and so what was it like in your family? Like if you can think of any uh, snapshots, vignettes, whatever you want to call it, that you you think uh, kind of um, paint a good picture. Yeah, that exemplifies. Have you ever seen like a food fight in a movie? I have just like that emotionally all the time. Uh, really? <laughs> I mean, well, it's when you have nine kids. That's a lot of personalities. Yes. And uh, and, and volume and, probably too. And right? the, and very much. Invo- but and the super interesting thing is it's it's not like nine kids that where I'm the oldest of nine and I'm the youngest of nine. They were so far split up that it was like three sets of three. So my oldest sister is 18 years older than me, and then my youngest sister. So like right now, I'm, I'm going to mention her age on air and get yelled at later but uh she's my oldest sister is 51 and my youngest sister is 24 so Uh there's a giant difference there so it was there was an older set of three and then 13 years later i was born and so i'm the oldest of the second set of three Mm -hmm. and then the other three girls there's another so it's kind of like three sets of three children so within even though there's nine within each group there's Mm -hmm. somebody who feels like they're the oldest so we have three oldest siblings with like that oldest personality disorder which is a nightmare and then we got like three favorites who all weren't parented the same way and it's 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 pretty interesting meaning three of uh, babies of each of the groups yeah there's three babies my younger brother Greg we call him Joseph and uh uh, and then we call my older sister, who's the younger of that three, uh, woman Joseph. So it's a they get they get they get all the love. So well, give me some moments uh, from this that that you think. Well, I, I I can so 
the thing that I think defines my family, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly sad moment, but walking forward, it's been the defining piece of our family. Is when I was eighteen, my sister Sarah uh, passed away in a car accident. Uh, she was a senior in high school, and uh, if anybody has gone through that sort of unexpected loss. Uh, that can do a lot of different things uh, to families. And I think, you know, you, you see families that they can't stay together. You know, divorce often mm-hmm. comes when, when people lose children. And uh, somehow, some way, that event put in all of our brains how fortunate we were to have one another. And uh, so there's, there's this odd... I, get, I can't really boil it down to a singular moment, but just the even... That's a pretty big moment. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, beyond that, that is a big... That, that's like the, the, the genesis of our current family dynamic, because the three adopted sisters were born of that moment. My parents, I, they lost my sister, and I think on top of having a, a giant hole in their heart, they felt like they were in a position to positively affect someone. And so that's why they brought those, those three girls into our family mm-hmm. and the way we accepted them. And I, I just think even and as simple as it is, right down to my stand-up career, if I, if I would talk about my experience, I, when I perform in a town where my family is, they are just all there. Like, and, it's, and it's the crazy thing is it's not even my siblings. So my oldest sister, Janine, has three kids, uh, my nephew and nieces, because she's so much older. So I have like a 30-year-old nephew mm-hmm. and a 24-year-old nephew and a 23-year-old niece. So it's like more siblings. And but how old are you? I'm 33. Okay. So it's, it's a weird dynamic when I'm like, this is Seth, he's my nephew. And they're like, all right, well, have fun with your banjos. And uh, <laughs> we... Uh, but they, I mean, they like for me to be somebody who pursues something creative and 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 kind of silly, and to get the support I've got. I think it all, it all comes back to everything that every one of us does. It comes back to that piece that we're all this unit, regardless of the current state of mind or frustrations mm-hmm. or dynamics that are going on. Where was Sarah in relation to you, age-wise? So she was, it was crazy. So she was the middle sibling uh, between my brother Greg and I. And she was, it was, uh, we were all one year apart in school, which is another Mm. reason my parents are lunatics. They had Greg and I, we were like four and two, I think, when they adopted her. And and she was three. So they were like, let's just make it insane for 16 years. And so I was in high school and uh, as a senior, and my sister was a junior, and my brother was a sophomore. Mm. So she was right in the right in the mix, which is an an intense thing for children. Uh, the way the number three goes through your life is it's dramatic. Yeah. It's dramatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the the three that uh, the the teenage girls that uh, that they adopted were they all related? They are all sisters. Yes, yeah. so they were all okay. sisters from. Uh, Waxahachie, Texas is where they were living. Waxahachie? Waxahachie, something like that, um, when, uh, when we adopted them. And uh, there was actually a fourth, there was a group of four sisters. So we adopted all, my parents adopted all four of them. And the, the oldest uh, was pretty close to graduation and I think had a life established mm-hmm. uh, back where she was. So when she turned 18, she decided to, to head on back to where she was, uh, where she had been previously living. But the other three, yeah sisters and have all 
gone on since being adopted to be you know have such wonderful lives and children and be unbelievable parts of our family that's amazing um it's an intense thing to adopt like that's i like, can't imagine uh, yeah it's uh, that's the reaction i always get when you tell people like if you tell somebody that you adopted a teenager that's a lot but three of them <laughs> at the same yes. time that is so much with three other people living in the house at that point yeah the other three were gone right so i was just gone my brother was still living there so there was at there were four living there at that time mm-hmm. and then my uh my one of my older sisters actually went on to recently adopt three children uh one of which was a teenager and the other one was nine and eight so she she got inspired by that and was like i will also adopt three almost Mm. adults wow the threes are almost getting creepy yep 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 you're just gonna pretty soon you'll just yes i'll be wearing your skin (laughs) this is all a ploy a third a third of my skin yeah 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 It'll be wrapped in a very yeah. three-ish way. Yeah, we don't want bad things to happen. We have to keep it in threes. <laughs> was there a moment uh, in adopting those girls uh, where they were living with you where it felt like family? Where the, You know what I mean? How sometimes in a relationship there's a moment when you feel bonded uh, to that person or was it just kind of gradual? Um, you know, I, th- I think it was a bit gradual. And I think the interesting thing is it was diff for me personally, and I can't speak on my parents' behalf or my, my siblings' behalf because humans just bond different, mm-hmm. you know? And I know my bond, my, I saw my dad bond quicker with some and then slower with the others. And I, th- that's just how personalities work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I can. There are there are moments I remember, like when you find when you just find commonalities and you move past this, like you're a new person to we're just people who have things in common and now are a part of the same unit. I, one of my sisters, June, I remember as silly as it is, I'm a big basketball fan and I played and I coached, and so when she start moved here and started playing basketball and we would go work out. You know, in the summer times, there was that quick, you know, sibling type bond there and stuff like that. So there, there was moments like that with each of them, but they were definitely kind of spread out and pushed around. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you were sharing with me uh, backstage that when Sarah died, um, OCD kind of started for you after that, and 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 other stuff. Well, I, w- I, w- I wouldn't. It, it, I don't know that it started. It? it started. So I. It started probably a little bit before that. Okay. Um, so I. So you lied. Yeah, I'm a liar. Um, <laughs> nothing I've said is factual to this point. Uh, I don't have a family. I was yes, actually yes. raised. And now by, you have to tell two other lies to keep it three. That's okay. I was raised by mice, and uh, <laughs> I'm worth a hundred million dollars. So, uh, so well, I. I, when I was 18 years old, I had a, I went through a thing where I, I did, I did a substance and it, uh, it did not go well. And, uh, it didn't go well to the fact that it really, uh, without going too far into it, caused me a lot of like mental anxiety, panic attacks, depression, and this kind of a long hallucinogen or would you rather not say? I, it was, it was just, uh, it was weed and it was laced. And oh, um, no. yeah, and I I didn't. I was an eighteen year old kid. I didn't do. I hadn't done a ton of drugs, anything like that. And so it just ruined me mentally. And it was that thing where I'd I'd thought 
for because it just went on and on and on this like i was i was kind of this surreal my life had turned into this like just different world almost and i i thought i'd you know permanently fucked myself up you know i wow. i was i thought of like you know you watch those movies when you're kids and then jimmy smoked some drugs and he was never the same i was like i jimmied myself and <laughs> um and, and the jimmy yourself at such an age yeah a real young jimmy and uh so it was about uh so that was the year before she passed so i kind of went through that year uh, I finally went to a therapist when I was probably, you know, eight, ten months into that. Because I, I found out, I started looking online. I was like, this can't be, I, it can't just be that. There's got to be something else going on here. Can and you describe what it was like? It's so, like, I, you know, it was, now that I understand more about it, it was probably a lot of the anxiety and, like, the panic attack and, like, panic disorder symptoms. Like, I, every, everything kind of took a surreal like visually, stuff felt surreal. Stuff felt dimmer. I just my vision was different. Uh, everything kind of felt narrower. I was always kind of. Are you of sure you weren't just wearing sunglasses? It was the sunglasses. Uh, yeah, I had a. I was diagnosed with. I wear my sunglasses at night, and uh, really hard to get through. Um, you know, a, a raised heartbeat, irrational fears, uh, a lot of stuff like that. I and. I, I I remember looking online and I found and I'd never even heard of it before I found PTSD mm-hmm. and I was like holy shit that's what I had this because a lot of it I've struggled with this thing that I have falsely termed uh, connective nostalgia or negative nostalgia where I don't know why my brain connects so hard to things so the night that that incident happened with uh, where I I'd had the bad experience like the visuals were so strong for me and so negative and they were so burned into my brain that they like if i even thought about them they would get me worked up like i thought they would happen again so almost like it was real like like you witnessed something or experienced yeah it was like and that's why ptsd made sense to me because i was like i was struggling like i kept felt like i was coming back to this place and then and this is where the ocd was born i think like i would I would have another anxiety attack, and I didn't realize it was an anxiety attack at that point. I thought I was just getting set back to the place that I that when I like I was having a flashback or something, mm. and I it I got to the point where like it was such a negative experience that anything surrounding that experience that reminded me visually of that experience would be a hard thing for me. Like if I had had some severe anxiety sitting in a chair, I wouldn't be able to sit in that chair anymore. And so that's why when I found out what PTSD was, I was like, is that the shit I have? And uh, I went to this therapist and he was like, that is not what you have. And uh, he kind of, you know, it was anxiety, panic disorder, that sort of thing. I was given some Xanax to try every once in a while. And then I kind of, like OCD became the thing that oddly enough pulled me out of that original thing because I I was like, I I wanted to try to deal with all this stuff. So I I came up with this plan where I I read and researched everything I could that I thought could possibly be wrong with me. I was like, well, is it my diet? And so I cut all this sugar out of my diet. I I cut all these carbs. I was like, is it that I'm not exercising? So I started exercising. And then if I started feeling better, I, I started connecting those things to to the improvements and then they became crucial to me and so like I was moving forward with things but also I in the same way I was connecting other things to 
falsely be the cause of it. You know, like that's the, a lot of thinking to I, have to do. It's we are just on the tip of the iceberg in terms wow. of thinking. But yeah, so that's kind of where it was. It was born, and so I started. Somehow that transformed into like. I felt like I had control over what was happening with me, mm-hmm. and I started to believe that, and it was like, and that is the basis, as far as my understanding goes, of obsessive-compulsive disorder is, you know, trying to deal with an obsession by controlling it through a behavior, and so it was like, oh, if I walk through that door wrong, I'm going to have a panic attack, or I'm, I'm going to feel the way I used to feel before, and I, you know, even when you're going through that, you know that that is irrational, but I was improving at the same time, and I was feeling better, and I was coming out of that haze that I was in, so I didn't quite rationalize that, and so for the longest time, I kind of wore OCD as like this badge of accomplishment as weird as that sounds because like i was not a great kid and then that thing happened and then like i kind of with that event i kind of refocused a lot of my priorities in life priorities good word and uh i focused my priorities and uh uh like i refocused on my family pretty hard and the way i treated other human beings and i just like the core of what i thought was important in, in how to behave and as a member of society, and uh, how do you, how, what do you think that's about? Why why that was connected to all that other stuff? I, I mean, I think like yeah, if you want to really psychologically break me down, I think it's probably like I have this, I'm I I have this sense of believing in some level of you know karma, I would say, mm-hmm. and I think what you put out into the world is probably at times what you get back and I was like well I'm and I and I as irrational as it sounds I think I blamed the place that I was in on myself for kind of the person that I was before that happened and so you know that that was probably a lot to do with it I see um yeah it's weird because I I kind of believe in karma as well but I don't think it's uh like on the schedule that that we, it's not movie karma, right? Yeah. Right, because uh, in in our heads we're like, well, then how is that successful person? You know, uh, yeah, how who come seems that murderer happy? is not in jail? Stuff like that, right? You know, guy who's cheating on his wife a ton and just is like swinging golf clubs, like I'm having a good time, yeah. right? <laughs> but you also never know what is happening internally. That's exactly with right. These people, and I believe that karma is kind of an internal, yeah, an internal thing, and to judge it externally. Um, is uh, not necessarily helpful. Yeah, and I think you know, that's exactly what I think. It's it's more. I, it was more. I think about maybe some force that exists. Less about some force that exists out in the world, and more about me. Maybe even subconsciously thinking like, I, well, I need to. If I want to feel the way I want to feel and be who I want to be, mm-hmm. I need to put my right feet forward and I certainly have failed a, a, a whole bunch of times at oh that. we know and continue <laughs> and I'm continuing to but that's I come back to that a lot like that's kind of my uh, my view of karma but okay. it was but then so I dealt with that for a year or so um, or actually excuse me I dealt with that for three months and then three months after all that had happened initially is when my sister died and so when my sister died that entered this whole new level of like and 
I, the night that she passed away, so what had happened was she was going, it was the night before Martin Luther King Day, and she was going to her and her friends, uh, they didn't tell anybody, they weren't supposed to be leaving town, but they were going to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to go to a dance club, and uh, they, they weren't supposed to be doing that, and I found out they were doing that, and I called, I knew one of the girls, and I called the girl in the car, and I was like, you're not supposed to tell her she's not supposed to be going, yada, 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 they still left, and on the way there, the car ended up rolling, and, uh, and so just like, you know, I think being involved in that close to like, hey, you shouldn't go, and that happening, and then seeing everybody go through what they went through, just added this whole other level of like fear and control, and they just kind of spiraled together and added the the death aspect in, and it just the ball was rolling from that point forward with OCD. Did did you feel like emotionally you had a hand in this tragedy? No, no, I didn't. Because I do. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> Can you imagine if you had said, "Had a good, t- have a good time, guys." Yeah, yeah. Drive fast. Good luck. Yeah. No, yeah. God, that would have been. I, that's one of those. That's why I, it's weird. But you say that. But I'm always, I'm pretty careful on how I speak on the phone uh, <laughs> when people are driving because of that exact thing. Wow. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, I think it more affected the way I'm, I've, we talked about this in the back, I'm terrified of death and as scared as I am of death for myself, God, I just like, I spend so much time worrying about when the people I love are going to die. That's a pretty, that's, and that's somehow become a big OCD thing that I'm trying to control that I can't control. So I'm sitting in a room fucking flipping a light switch on and off because I want my Uncle Craig to be alive and shit. And, it, and I think that is what was born out of it. That understanding that that, like, it is a real thing. People do die in tragedies and, and you are going to have to rationalize that for the rest of your life. And so while you're doing this, while you're flipping a switch or whatever the activity is, are you intellectually understanding that this is just a coping mechanism, but emotionally it's satisfying something in you? You know, I, so I... Or do you believe that it is? No, it, okay. I, well, I, I do and I don't. So I, I it, so it got really, really bad for a while. So after that, at first I kind of wore it as like a badge. And then it got to the point where uh, it... it it consumed every single second of every single day. And to be honest, it still is pretty damn close. But I, I can hide it pretty well. And I, it's, it's more a, a part of my routine than it is detrimental. But there was a point where I was going to school here in town at Augsburg. And it was like every st- everything I would do in numbers. And mine, you know, some people, they have specific stuff. Like I have to do this thing three times. I have to do that five times. Mine was like until it felt right in my brain. So sometimes it might be four times. Sometimes it might be two and then one. It was, it was kind of very erratic. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to school at Augsburg and I like... By the time I got home at 2 o'clock, I would be just so exhausted that I would lay down on the couch and I would lay there until it was bedtime and then I would go to sleep. Like it was physically completely draining me. Uh, So I ended up, I started going back to a therapist uh, and I went to this guy who he he referred to it consistently in therapy as uh, magical thinking. And uh, I thought that was an interesting way to decide. And he was this cool therapist that I'd never experienced before where he kind of let me guide the therapy. Like, he knew I was super... This is fucked up, what he did. Um, But 
he knew I was super competitive, and I told him like because I I I would do stuff like I I, I understood how I was killing myself with the OCD, and I needed to give myself a break. But it was the fear of like I'm gonna have a panic attack. Someone I love is gonna die. Something bad is gonna happen. I was carrying that around all day, and so I started making this is crazy. I started making deals with myself to release it. Like I would be like. I like to golf, mm-hmm. and uh, so I would tell myself, all right, here's the deal. You're going to golf nine holes, and if you can shoot below a 48, you're, nothing bad is going to happen today, and the OCD doesn't matter. And if you can't shoot below a 48, you're fucked. And that's just a good call because golf is easy. That's that's exactly right. And I always put the number. I always put the number like enough strokes high enough that I wasn't good. But I remember one time I was I was on the ninth hole and I I needed to be up and down in two shots, right? And or the fear was coming and uh and again even even going through this i did know that it was irrational but it was this coping mechanism and again my therapist was like i think that's okay and <laughs> but i was he carrying your clubs <laughs> yeah, yeah. he was he was just sitting in the car talking to his therapist friends like i got him to do it guys <laughs> he's, he's he's gonna i think he's gonna shoot 50 this is over <laughs> And uh, but I remember I was on the ninth hole and I needed I needed to be down in two strokes for the deal to go through that day and uh, I was pretty nervous and uh, uh, I was probably sixty yards out and I swung a chip shot and I remember it bounced on the front of the green bounced like probably five feet up on the pin so it was to the pin but it was five feet high it hit the pin and fuck dropped right in the hole oh my god <laughs> and I remember dropping the club I was like holy shit I'm done with this <laughs> and uh, and so then it was time to start moving on from, but since I was with that therapist I started this understanding that it is it, it, it is ma- I understand that it is fiction it is magical thinking that doesn't mean it's not real to me and it doesn't mean that I can't break it but I've also and I've worked with another therapist since then uh, who was really great. I know what it takes to beat it. So, like, I understand that, you know, it's, it's like conditioning. It's like if you're scared of, you know, if you're scared of snakes, you go stand by a snake and a snake doesn't bite you, you're fine. And so if your OCD is, and this is a, the most basic explanation, but if my OCD is like if I go through that door incorrectly, my Uncle Craig is going to die, I just have to go through the door and... He has to not die, and I have to. I can release from it, but that's so much harder than you know. Even though I know it's irrational and I know it's not correct, it's so much harder to actually do it. And I've, I'm slowly working on it. I'm. I've been over the last year reworking on a lot of stuff, slowly beating individual behaviors and eliminating them. But you know. So what's it feel like in your body as you walk? through the door do the thing that is the opposite of what your compulsion wants you to do so when i actually break one yeah it's it's brutal it's just it's give us every detail that you that you can (laughs) can think of because people here that don't uh haven't experienced ocd um i'd like them to try to understand and for the listeners to try to understand what it's like um for one, because I'm interested in it, but two, uh, the loved ones of people with OCD can yeah. be so confused sometimes, and they don't know. I think if they can understand what it's like for that person, they'll understand that it's not 
intellectual and um, yeah. Well, I I should point something out uh, is that like I'm I consider myself pretty fortunate because I I'm pretty functional. You know, I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty happy at, at times. And I there've been ups and downs. I dealt with a pretty major panic attack when I was 26 that set me back for like a year and I dealt with some stuff 2 years ago with my back issue and that wrapped some mental stuff into it. But my OCD it's always been something that's been a problem and an inconvenience and it's been difficult and it's been stressful but there are people out there who who don't get out of their houses man there are people who like they they can't defeat it or even live a normal life so i want to i should i should point out that i'm i'm i consider myself pretty fortunate to be uh, a functional mm-hmm. member of society uh but um I would say because a lot of my stuff is I do it's a lot of steps and a lot of footwork and I just in the last handful of years have really understood not only what that takes a toll on you mentally but even just physically like when you're stepping over cracks and opening doors and bending and turning there's always like you stop and I don't know if you've ever had that thing where you go to a massage or anybody who's working on your body and they go just take a breath and relax your shoulders and you realize your shoulders are way the hell up Mm -hmm. here like that's I think when you have OCD and you're in the midst of a behavior going, staircases are really hard for me. So I'm going up and down staircases a bunch and there's so much like physical stress. And For example, yeah, uh, what on the staircase? So I like, I just, I, everything I do is numbers. So I, I don't like stepping on and I don't know where, the crazy thing for me is I don't know where these came from. I think I just did them once when I was stressed out and then it was okay. So I don't like to step on the very first step going down or the very first step coming up. I only step on the middle steps. So if I go to step and I, and I go to step on the first step, but even then stuff doesn't feel right in my brain, I'll do that again. So I'm taking a big step down, like mm-hmm. stepping. It's a lot of walking patterns that are more dramatic than a lot of other people would make you know we're like i i don't like stepping in water puddles i don't know how that became a thing but it, it I is think that's a thing. common sense yeah i think that is common sense yeah. but i don't even like getting near them so you'll yes. see me i had a friend who i was over by acme and i was just trying to get across that street there and i was like fucking jumping over a puddle and shit and a car almost hit me and one of my friends was like ah we're gonna have to work on this <laughs> like yes. playing frogger in the street but so there's i think there's a physical aspect of it that i feel when i'm doing that but then when you compile the like the mental aspect of you like you have that mental stress of whether it's your own personal health and happiness or somebody else's you're worrying about it does the best way i can describe it is you feel like this you feel the opposite not in a panic or anxiety way but you know when you lay down on the couch and you're just like <sighs> like that moment of relief and relax it's the opposite of that it's it's like you're living in a mission impossible movie yeah it, it does you know? it, yeah it kind of like dancing around stepping over uh, beams and stuff like yeah. that and so but just the t- yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, just yeah, yeah. Counting Pressure, down. This is yeah. This is a big shit's going to explode figuratively. Yeah, if I don't get this right, if, if I don't I, clip the right wire, if I don't do it correctly. Yeah, and so when when I go to beat one of those, like it's interesting. You because ha- the the thing that OCD does is when you get it right, you release. So when I walk through the door and I get it right, for even if it's for a moment, I'm like, I got it right. What do you <sighs> mean when you get it right? Like if I know that like. I go and I open a door and it's a lot of visual imagery for me. So like if I go to like walk off this stage, for example, and I step off it and in my head, you remember I was talking about negative nostalgia? Mm-hmm. If I have something in my head that is connected to that year right after that incident happened and my sister died, mm-hmm. like 
there was a place that I spent a lot of time up north, and there was a certain chair that I spent a lot of time sitting in, and so and I, there was a lot of anxiety, and so that chair really connected to my brain as a place that I spent a lot of time in a pretty bad place. And just like memories with like every human being, you know, you hear a song, and it takes you back to a relationship or a moment like that stuff's just all in your brain and i think people with ocd they get caught on st- like if you can't beat an image it doesn't ever go away it always circles back so if i go to step off these stairs and i see that chair my brain goes if you keep walking you're gonna have a fucking panic attack man you're gonna be back in that place and so i will you know come back over and i'll kind of try to wipe that image from my mind and place it onto a positive image a happy moment for my life just a replacement image i'll put that in there and if i can get that image and walking forward then that is that is what i mean by getting it right i got you certainly not getting it right but like getting it right in that moment where i've uh gotten past that piece of obsession and uh and that's there's there is a release in that there's a relief in it and so i think going back to your original question when you when you go to beat something like that and like and actually if i were to get past a lot of the behaviors like if if one of my things one of the things i've been working on is doors like opening them and just just trying to do it just one time no matter what happens but you have to have that feeling of like the fear and the kind of like a little bit of body tenseness and a little bit of the exhaustion and you just have to walk forward with that and then let your release and relief be that the thing you were scared of didn't happen Hmm. like you the person that you were worried was going to die or the bad thing that you thought was going to happen to you if it doesn't happen your release comes but it doesn't come immediately right you know (laughs) that's that's a pretty big it's a pretty big leap of faith when your brain has been working that way for a pretty long time. I can't imagine. And uh, like again, like I said, there are. I am a very. I am very fortunate. I live a life that I am quite happy with in my relationships and my behaviors. But I, I also I have people in my family who are very supportive. I have a fiance that, as best as she can, understands that stuff and is insanely helpful. I have a you know I have a brother and a mo- like. I have the sort of brother who I hurt my back two years ago, and I'm a, I'm a pretty active person. Mm-hmm. And so when I hurt my back, and it, it, I've been in physical therapy for my back for a couple of years trying to get back to being a person again, but when somebody takes physical activity away from you and you've been very physically active, you can spiral mentally into some, some not great places, you know? And so I was having a pretty tough time with anxiety and uh, I'm certain probably some level of depression and then just the physical pain. And my brother Greg is the type of dude who flew home from Nashville, called his boss, was like, I gotta go home. Flew home from Nashville for a week, just like hung out with me every moment like i was having insomnia i couldn't sleep he would like he was staying in the room with me watching tv until i fell asleep like wow i'm i am and that's that goes back to that car accident that goes back to when you go through some shit like that and that's that's my mom that's my dad that's i i don't know how i got that lucky to have people who you know everybody in here understands that mental health isn't necessarily viewed the way we would all like it to be viewed amongst our peers and and the community and family and i'm i'm super fortunate that way i it took them a minute to get it but once they got it they got Mm -hmm. it and ran with it and are there also emotional conversations between you 
and your family, or, or is it more that it's kind of unspoken and you guys just physically gather together and are nice to each other? Uh, just in general, do you mean? You know, for instance, would, you know, would your brother, uh, you know, say, you know, I love you, sigh, I'm, I'm here for you, or would it, he just show up and kind of be loving? And I'm always interested in, yeah. in outwardly how a family expresses uh, their emotions uh, verbally in addition to actions. And I think that, going back to the car accident again, I think stuff like that, it can always be an event that pushes things one way or another. Because you see people who, who suffer a loss and it it just, they bury everything. And they can never cope with it and they can never use it moving forward. And somehow, some way, it's ever... My, I remember growing up, my mom, she would never say I love you on the phone. And we all knew she loved you, but like it got to the point where... Like, as I was becoming an adult, I'd be on the phone with her, and uh, she'd be like, I got to go. And I'd be like, I love you. And she'd go, okay. And I'd be like, and you love me too, because you're my mom. <laughs> and uh, why, why did she, would she not say it? I, she's a farm lady, man. She's yeah. just a tough farm lady. And my dad is the opposite way. My dad was the sort of man who, like, he'd walk up to you with a group of your 20-year-old friends, if he hadn't seen you for a while, and just point at his cheek, because he wanted you, you to kiss him on the cheek in front of your adult male friends. And... Yeah. Uh, but that from that moment, I think we all have you know our stuff that we bury and that we we project and things like that. But emotionally, we really do. I know how everybody feels. Even those nephews and nieces. I was like, I, I was talking about I, my nephew Ethan and my niece Ellie have said some things to me in my life. Just at moments like on my birthday or at Christmas, just when there was no need for a human being to do that for them to verbally point out how much they care about you. Well, it's somehow, like I said, we just got lucky with that. So we are vocal in that way. Do you remember what they said? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, are you comfortable sharing it? Um, I mean, yeah, I can, I can share one of them. I just, I, my, I have a, my nephew Ethan is, uh, I'll share his. But it was, it was just one of those things where it was on my birthday when he we also have our family is interesting multi-generational as i was talking about before so i grew up with a, as an 18 i was born with an 18 year old sister 15 year old brother 13 year old sister so i a lot of my time was spent around older people mm-hmm. and then when those when my nephews and nieces were born we like brought them into the fold from the same way so it wasn't it wasn't ever and and my my grandma, who just passed away this past year... Um, What'd you do wrong? Yeah. <laughs> Too many cracks, man. Fuck. Too many cracks. I warned you. I warned you. 103. She was 103 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. And another three. Yeah, and there we go. Mm-hmm. And uh, she lives... So my grandma, my, it's my dad's mother, she lived with us. So my parents, when they built a new house when we were growing up... While they were building it, we were living in the top half of my grandma's house. And so when they built it, they built uh, like her own part of the house on the mother-in-law suite. She had a kitchen, living room, bedroom, the whole nine. So like to go on over to my grandma's house, we would literally go down the hallway, which was one of the great experiences, I think, of my life. And, uh, and so I've, I've lived in this multi-generational way my entire life where age wasn't really a limit on the sort of relationship that you could have with someone um, in your family. You and guys were like a living census. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very similar. It's <laughs> very, very similar. Uh, but you my, could play any board game. <laughs> we literally could. <laughs> yes. We literally, there were some board games that would, we'd just look at the box and be like, fuck you, Amundsen's. There's too many. <laughs> you can't be a part of this. But he, on one of my birthdays, uh, he called me and told me uh, that I was, his, I was his best friend uh, and that he loved me and that he was so happy that we had the relationship we had and got to spend the amount of time that we had. And I, for a kid, I think he was 19 years old, I couldn't even fucking fathom it. I couldn't believe it. That's he's, pretty amazing. He's so impressive that way. And that's, you know, I could tell that stories about the other ones, but that's the one that I will, that I'll give you. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, you want to trade some uh, fears and loves to close this thing out? <laughs> or is there something else that you? Uh, oh would no, like no! To I was just I was, when you said when we were talking about it backstage, you know, like, you know, you can say what you just let them rip, and I was like, oh boy. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, let's do it. Okay, and we haven't prepared these, so there might be long. Uh, there might be some pauses while we. Uh, it's not too hard to get in touch with the horror show in our heads. Uh, let's start off with some fears. Um, I am afraid that I have missed I'm sure I've said this one before that I have misjudged how financially uh, what I will need to survive in old age and I will just be living in squalor filled with regret and shame that is a good one (laughs) (laughs) and ill-fitting dentures Oh, I am afraid uh, I've been dealing with back issues for the last two years and they've slowly been getting better but it's taken a long time I'm afraid that they're never going to get better I'm afraid that this is my life from here moving forward until I'm whatever day I expire I will never again enjoy life the way I enjoyed it before I hurt my back and that will be an unpleasant person yeah. uh, for somebody who has had uh, back issues on and off uh, since I was 16. Um, I have experienced long periods of time of not having issues, and I'm not saying our situation is, is exactly the same, but I had those same fears. And every time my back hurts, I think this is it. This is the beginning of the end. It's never going to get better. Actually, depression is the kind of the same way. When depression rolls in, I think, okay, you know, the visitor has come to stay. It's unpacking its shit and it's making it's making a home for itself. That's how I felt when that then when I had the panic attack when I was twenty six, and then the issue a year and a half ago. Whenever it comes, it doesn't feel like it's leaving. Yeah, yeah. But back issues fucking suck. You're reminded every second you go to do something. Yeah, you know, you go to punch somebody, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> I feel that all the way down my leg. Just try to kick in a car window, and you're like, I used to be able to do this. Yes. Yes. Leaping off moving trains so hard when your back hurts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I am afraid. uh, I'm afraid of Ivy uh, dying. That's our... We had two dogs, and Herbert was... uh, was our guy who died last year and Ivy is 14 and I just every day that I go and visit her because she lives with my ex um, I feel the pain as if she is on her deathbed and 
you know, I look into her eyes when, you know, she's giving me kisses and it's, it's like I'm looking for some type of feeling that's going to put that sadness away, that's going to soothe it, but there isn't anything. And I wish I could intellectually understand that this is, it's not going to kill me, but it hurt so much when Herbert died um, that I just, I, I can't help but not only think it, but feel it every time uh, I see her and I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Yeah, that's not detailed enough, is it? No, that's that's no. the most details I've ever heard. I I had a pug named Pudge, great dog name. And uh, when I was, I got it when I was ten. Uh, fun fact, because as a kid, I've always been kind of a, a person who had fears. So in the middle of the night, I would like usually three, four in the morning, I would walk upstairs and fall asleep in my parents at the foot of their bed. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "You're ten now, maybe stop." And uh, and I was like, "You get me a dog, I'll stop." And they were like, "Fuck." For sure. And uh, they bought me Pudge. But when Pudge died, she'd gotten sick. And she like they're like, she doesn't seem like she's going to make it. And, and I was like, well, I can't come home till next week. And she's, like, survived almost like she was waiting for me to come home. And then when the day that I got home uh, came that night and in the middle of the night curled up at my feet, and that's where she died. Oh and my God. that, like, I remember crying, like, to where, like, we just had her in a shoebox and shit afterwards. And I was like, is this, I, I'm still crying. There's nothing coming out. Have I produced all of the tears? It was, it was I get it, man. That's a, that, that one's heavy. Uh, I'm afraid uh, that, given a lot of the stuff that I just said earlier, that I have an amazing fiancé, but I'm afraid that the support system that I've been provided with my family sets an unrealistic expectation for my fiancé. And the things that I need to get through the tough times are so so large and, and so impressive that I'm worried what that expectation will not only do to her, but do to my view as, of her as we go through things as a team. And she's been unbelievable this far, but I, I think about that constantly. When If we get to a point in life where my mother and father are no longer around, and heaven forbid something happens to one of my other pieces of my support system, and she is my lone support system, how am I going to deal with that and placing expectations on her? And I, that's one that walks around me constantly wow that's that's heavy have you ever talked to her about that oh yeah yeah, yeah, what yeah, did yeah. she said you know she's she's pretty she's such a champ man she's it's always well you know let's keep talking we're very our thing is making sure we're walking forward mm-hmm. and i'm a big i'm a big like everybody should always be improving in some way or another and you should always be you can't always be happy or can't always be getting better but if if you can and you're in a place to, you should be looking at some way to walk forward. And so that we kind of frame conversations like that around that. So she's always curious what she can do to be that sort of support system. I think mm-hmm. she pays close attention to the people around me. I think she pays close attention to me and the things that are difficult for me. And uh, so I, I think she just kind of, you know, she communicates but also just lives it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a pretty much all you can ask for. Yeah, and the fact that you guys are talking about it is is huge. She, it's crazy, man, because she 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 does not come from a communicative family. 
and uh, by her own admission, that's not how. Not she's got a, an amazing family. That's not what I mean. But she just communicating your emotions and stuff isn't who she's been since a child. Gotcha. And I'm the opposite of that. And so early on, that was really a tough thing for us. And like the evolution that she's made to this person, who I always know what she's thinking and what she wants and what she needs from me, and I can tell her what I need from her is uh, a pretty a pretty big uh, credit in her. In her category. Isn't it amazing how much time we waste worrying about the future? Holy shit. And, and then basing our emotions on this fucking unrealistic picture, either grandiose or uh, apocalyptic. Um, oh, yeah. It's, but it's, it's so hard to not. It's, I, think it's Im- I think it's impossible not to. I think that's the human condition. And I think I'm a big believer in was this is something she and I talk about a lot is like I I think you develop outside of even mental illness and and mental happiness and any of that stuff you develop behaviors and patterns and a viewpoint on the world and as as humans get into kind of the age that we are and you get into your 30s and 40s when behaviors really start cementing if you aren't keeping a close watch on yourself and your partner and like keeping the lines of communication and the idea that I need to be on top of myself. It's pretty, I mean, you know, everybody knows people who they're like 48 years old and everything that comes into their brain comes in with a negative filter Mm -hmm. because they looked at it like everything catastrophically for so long. I think, I think it's pretty easy to succumb to that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really easy. And the people like that become really hard uh, when you change. Yes. Uh, to be around them. Yes. It, it's you're like, "Oh, I used to be toxic. I didn't even realize it. That's why I was it felt so familiar being around Charles yeah. Manson." Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who did the last one? Uh, Me. I did you. the last one. I am. Let's do one more. Okay. One more fear uh each. I am I am afraid that in the not too distant future Getting enough water to drink is going to be a daily concern. And I will look back at long showers I took and think, oh, my God, I'll never get to experience that again. And even feel a little bit of shame that I was so cavalier about uh, water being a uh, resource that would last uh, forever. Well, I mean, you're not super far off on that one. Fuck you. I think. <laughs> no, no I, I, I think that's one that I, I think about a lot. I've, so my dad is a biology professor. He's a, re- a really impressive guy. Uh, teach, taught his courses out of his brain. Like, didn't mm. use notes, nothing. Walked Darwin's Trail, whole nine. Really Im- incredible dude. And so I was raised in a house uh, where the environment... And habitat and and nature were such a huge priority. And, you were uh, raised in Galapagos Islands. Yep, right? yep, 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 yep. I was I was I was raised in a, actually a nest. And uh, um, I think you you spend any amount of time paying any attention to that stuff, and that fear isn't very far off. <laughs> yes, that's a, yes. that's a, that one's probably the most realistic one that either of us have thrown <laughs> up on the stage here today. Um, I uh, I am afraid. And I think I'm afraid of this maybe because I'm selfish and I'm a comedian and I want the career that I want to have and I want the audiences that I want to have. But I'm afraid of what's happening 
to the way human beings interact. I feel like whether you want to blame it on fake news, one side or the other, you want to blame it on... I I think throughout history, the dumbest people have always been the loudest. And with the advent of social media, the general population hasn't figured out that the dumbest are the loudest. They haven't figured out that most of these people are just the assholes at bars that we used to think, oh, that's just fucking Terry, and he's Mm -hmm. a dickhead. Um... (laughs) And, and now his thing gets shared 20,000 times. So now we, all these fucking Terry's are out there, and you're all sitting at your family dinner tables like, yo, that's not what Terry said, and we're all following the Terry's, and we're, we're getting to this point where everything is so, so, so black and white, and, and, and I'm a big nuance person. I, like, I have this comedian friend, Andy Woodhall, who's mm-hmm. fantastic, and he was told me this thing he was talking about uh, a personal relationship thing with a friend of his who had done some things and he, he said you know the thing is not people are not very few people are all bad or all good mm-hmm. it doesn't exist you know the whole world is nuanced gun control is nuanced you know uh, the abortion argument is nuanced the po- politics are nuanced religion is nuanced every single thing that divides us is nuanced and we're just getting I'm scared that we are getting to this point that people are becoming such basic believers of hard truth and followers that they're not going to be able to be participants in the art world and in the enjoyment of like mm-hmm. in the enjoyment of things that we all as human beings should really really like because they can't get past all their predisposed certainties mm-hmm. uh, and and then they won't like my comedy as much <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I am afraid that then it is going to go beyond what people write and it's going to begin to have physical representations in the real world that will escalate and before we know it it we are living the uh israeli palestinian thing but on our uh mm-hmm. on our own soil um god damn it let's do some loves huh i'm this is the one i'm excited for uh why don't you start out then <coughs> no i want you to start i like going All second right. i like you. you're um, the leader you're the terry i, I love I love the, even though I have very mixed feelings about it, about Christmas, I love the glow of Christmas lights. I love the multicolored lights, um, and it just feels like, um, I don't know, it, 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 it's so warm, it almost feels like the perfect uh, fire in the fireplace. Yeah, that's good. I love Christmas and Christmas lights. Mm. I love uh, I love water. I think it's so. My parents were teachers, and so in the summertime, they're such crazy, hardworking people. You know, they were just one day they're like, "Fuck it, more kids," and that was every aspect of what they did. So in the summer, they just didn't want their summers off. They ran a resort in northern Minnesota. So my entire childhood, the summers were spent near a lake. In uh, northern Minnesota. And so I, it, it, water to me, if you put me, like if I'm driving by a lake, I don't, I, it's as silly as it sounds, just every part of my being feels happier and simpler. And it, it's that connective nostalgia thing. I just, I fucking love water. I, yes. If I can be near it, I'm about as happy as, as you can get. I could, I could not agree more. And uh, I, I think that there is something... Uh, genetic in us as well that that feels that 
way. Uh, but it was the only thing growing up that I saw made my dad happy was when he was in a pool or he was in the ocean, it's like my dad was there. He was playful. He paid attention to us. He showed how to, us how to swim, how to dive. And, uh, and I've always been fascinated by uh, big waves in the ocean, just the turbulence of it. And, and I suppose that dark and light, that it yeah. could kill you, but it also is so soothing and wonderful. You yeah. know? It's like my mom. <laughs> um, I also love the smell of uh, a cottage in the water, and it's got a little bit of that musty smell, Mm. and when breakfast is cooking in the morning, and the smell of bacon, and also that little kind of musty... When you first open the window, that's as good as it gets, yeah. Yeah. Um, I love... I love that feeling when I'm learning a new song on guitar... And I can get it to where, at least for a stretch of five or ten seconds, I'm playing it exactly how it's supposed to be played. I've been obsessed with the song uh, Paranoid Android by Radiohead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so for like an hour or two hours every day for the last three weeks, I've just been working on on learning this song. And it's just so cool to sit down and and go, oh, my God, I'm, I'm actually starting... To play this, it's if it's. I, I suppose in some ways, it's the feeling of you're doing something nice for yourself, and you're also seeing yourself move forward in your life in a way that's tangible. My, we were talking about my comedian friend David Huntsberger, who's fantastic backstage, and he always is quick. You know, when you're when when, when I'm working on a project or trying to get something sold, he's always quick to point out that. You need to always step back and remember that the best part, whether you can notice it while you're going through everything, is the creation. And so that's probably what that is, is satiating that feeling of starting from zero and yeah. moving towards a thing that you wanted to see, you know, be in existence. Yeah. Um, I love... <laughs> this is going to be such a hillbilly one. I love pictures of the Caribbean. And... <laughs> It gets worse. I've never been to the Caribbean. I've never, never. So uh, growing up, my family's vacation was every year we would drive to Montana. We would, and I don't know if you've driven from here to Montana, but it is like driving back in time. And, uh, and I always, so I've, I've never, and I, I, I'm, I brights. I really like brights. Bright yellow, bright blue, bright green. I've, summer's my favorite season. I, it, it's just, it's a warmth thing to me, a happiness thing. And uh, that, the Caribbean is kind of the ultimate of that. And so, like, despite, <laughs> and this, this is the year, man. I'm going, I'm going to Bimini. That's what I'm going to do. That's a, one of my big plans. It's the closest Caribbean. It's not a long flight. I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You can fly to Miami, get on a boat. Shit's easy. And, uh, but I like, I like, I've seen the movie Cool Runnings. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's like my favorite movie because of that. Like, we got this, when I got my new job, we got, I was like, I'm the, also the sort of hillbilly that when I get a new job, I'm like, well, I'm going to buy the biggest TV that they done have. And <laughs> I did to the point where my fiance came home and she was like, you are, a dumbass and uh, it doesn't fit on the table at all we just look like trash and uh, but it has uh, what's the what's the highest grade uh, 4k four, yeah 4k and so you can go I <laughs> here's <laughs> so I'm in Best Buy 
And I'm talking to the dude about TVs, and I got my brother, one of my brothers, who's also a worrier with me, who's like, that's too much. And so I'm already over him. I'm, anything the salesman say, I'm like, yep, I'll do it. <laughs> but the guy, there's, you know, when you go buy TVs, and they have the, either the pictures of the cities that are lit up or of the Caribbean. And I was like, man, I wish... I wish they had that shit like on a DVD. I would buy it. And he goes, well, I got some news for you. (laughs) He goes, you buy this TV right here and you go on Amazon Prime. They have 4K landscapes that look just like this that you could load up. I was like, Jess, fuck new TV. And that's... Why I bought my two TV? I just I love it, and I I almost to the point where I'm worried the real Caribbean is going to let me down. Yes. Well, enjoy the crushing poverty. Yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. show that on the 4K. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is just me selfishly, and then the 4K pans over, and I'm yes. like, oh, I've been a bad person for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I have watched those channels. I put the, those and the aerial uh, ones yeah. over Ireland. Yeah, those are those are fantastic. Yeah. And I've even sat and watched the fireplace. Yeah, I love I love that Christmas time. Put the fireplace yes. on. Yeah. yeah, that sounds nice. Real fireplace would be good, but you know, I want to stay in one of those uh, straw huts on the water. Yeah, on one of these good. days, that's like one of my dreams. That'd be good. And to go powder skiing in uh, uh, British Columbia. Uh, what do I love? What do I love? Can you think of another one? Oh, I got another one. I could do. I like do loves. One. I could do tons yes. of loves. Rattle some. Just rattle some. I fucking love basketball. And it's not just that I like sports. It's that when I've gone through my OCD and anxiety and, you know, the thing that before, that was a tough thing about my back being hurt that I, I don't know that I'll play basketball again, mm-hmm. but basketball has always represented to me in my adult life because I wasn't very good growing up. I sat the bench in high school and then I got really into it after high school and worked really hard and uh, almost walked on at Augsburg. And then I started coaching at a school here in town called Orono. And every time I was going through something, it was almost like basketball was the weird backdrop that focused me on something positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I was like I was like 19 and 20, I was an assistant in Orono, and the head coach, this incredible man, Mike Blansky, like walked me through what it was like to be a coach and to help kids and be a part of all this stuff. And I was so focused on it that it kind of brought me through some shit. And then when I was when I had this massive panic attack when I was 26, and as I was coming out of that, I got back in the gym and started coaching my nephew's team uh, when he was a senior. And even when I was having a tough time in L.A., like the happiest I was was just going to one of the gyms and playing pickup ball and being in a league and just something about something about the competition and the you know the environment is always represented and even like watching it on television i don't know it's just just always been such a wonderful escape for me so i i love basketball that's a great one uh i love uh when you're on a ski trip the feeling of your uh taking the first chairlift up and breathing the cold in through your nose and and remembering oh yeah that's what cold snow smells like and you can smell the evergreen yeah. trees a little bit and you're looking at the run and you're and you're going oh, i'm going to go down that way and then i'm going to go down that and just that excitement and especially when you're with people that you love and you haven't spent time around in, in a little while and the really really inappropriate jokes uh, <laughs> uh on the on the chairlift or playing some type of 
game that the stranger on the chairlift with you doesn't know is going on <laughs> where you are pretending you're other people or you're letting some some kind of uh, uh, fictitious thing about your lives uh, uh, come out that so this person just thinks you are you know just like they can't wait to get off the chairlift <laughs> yeah it's like when you lie to somebody who's sitting next to you on the airplane because you're like oh if i don't lie this guy's gonna talk to me for the whole yes. time yes <laughs> um i i love campfires and i know that's a thing that everybody loves but i so that that resort that my parents owned so they sold that years ago but kind of kept a, a, a piece of property that, has, that they stay on and that like my 103-year-old grandma and her 96-year-old sister stayed on. And it's just, it's kind of like a family compound where this giant family of mine can get together. But also on the property, it, my dad's best friend from high school had, uh, had a trailer that was on the resort. And so when the resort sold, the trailer stayed. So, and he has three kids that are three of my best friends. So they're basically an extra family. And then my uh, my other best friend Joel Hookstra, who's my writing partner and my creative partner, and my, he's my brother's best friend too. So he's he was there the night my sister died. He had spent the night. My bro, he and my brother and I were all in the same room when we found out the next morning. He's as literal as family can be without being blood. He's just down the road. And my brother Jess, who's divorced, just lives two, moved home after a divorce and now lives two houses down. So when, we, when there's a campfire up there in the summertime, uh, it's not just a campfire smells amazing and the, like the crackle, the noise. Mm-hmm. Like, I hear that, I get so happy. But it's the entire circle of those humans, if they're up there on a weekend, they're just, it's this like, just gigantic like 20-foot circle of nearly every human being I love in the world mm-hmm. sitting around one another just talking shit and joking. And, and then to make it even crazy, like one of those kids from my dad's best friend married one of my brother's best friends from high school and that guy's dad dad is one of my dad's other best friends wow and he got bought a place down the way so they're over all the time so it's just this big circle of the most important people in my world sitting around one thing interacting with each other and so if i that's if even when you said earlier when you were talking about the campfire on Mm -hmm. tv you said campfire and my brain immediately saw that circle yeah well, that's a beautiful one to, to end on. Thank you so much for coming on and, yeah. and uh, sharing all the stuff that you, well, I'm, you I, did. I am a, I am a gigantic uh, fan of yours and a gigantic fan of the show. And uh, so you coming to do it here in this town at this place uh, that I love so much uh, with Sam, is uh, that's a thing I love. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Cy. Cy yeah. Emmonson, everybody. Amundsen. Yes. Nailed thank you, it. guys. Could Minnesotans be any nicer? I've yet to meet... Actually, I take that back. There was a guy I used to play hockey with who was a prick, uh, and he was from Minnesota. He's the exception. He's the only a-hole that I've ever met from Minnesota. I'm sure if I moved there, I'd go, God, 10,000 lakes? How about 10,000 assholes? That's not bad, though, for an entire state. Uh, Many thanks to Cy. And I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this episode. And um, if you want to know more about Cy, I put the links to um, all his stuff on the website. And uh, just never forget that you are not alone and help is out there. Uh, It's just taking that first scary step and asking for it. And thanks for listening. 
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.